Uh, real quick before I, I get started, I just wanted to share something with you. We got in the mail this week that I thought was kind of cool. Um, so this was a family that was driving through town maybe, um, and they visited us and got home and they enjoyed being with us so much that they wrote us a thank you card for having come. Yeah, I thought that was pretty impressive. So it listed a bunch of different things. Uh, they just said, Dear Woodbury Church members, writing uh, your church for the first time. We came to your church for the first time. Uh, there were four of them, and they loved it. They loved the, the singing. They loved the welcome, uh, that everybody, everybody was warm and welcoming. Um, they said the singing was, like, loud enough. And I was like, that's kind of interesting, right? Loud enough? Did you think it was loud enough this morning? Me too. I love it when it's loud enough. Um, and then their, their kids loved it as well. So I just wanted to share that with you because I thought that, like, that means a lot to us as a church, right? When somebody has a, like, a great experience here, they're traveling through, and they get warmly greeted and welcomed. Um, they actually, I don't know if this means anything, if I should read any subtext into this, but they sent it on a St. Patrick's <laughs> Day card. So I don't know. I, I mean, my name is Patrick. I don't know if there's any correlation there. If you're visiting with us today, we expect a thank you card. That's all that means. No, I'm kidding. Totally kidding. If you're visiting with us today, we are, we are just super grateful that you made the choice to be with us, and we just hope that uh, the experience here will feel like you've actually uh, been with Christians who have the goal of worshiping and loving God. So, all right, we're going to start, jump right in. When I was a teenager, uh, we lived in a part of the world where there were a lot of caves, like big holes in the ground, you know, caves. And uh, you, could, you could just go in these caves and explore, like no guides, no helmets, nothing. You just grab a flashlight and some of your buddies and you climb in this cave and explore around. Now, I just want you to know, my mom is in the audience today and this is the first she's hearing of this, so... Before you make any assumptions about her parenting, know that she learns a lot when I tell stories as a... She's like, I never knew you did that. Well, should have paid more attention, I guess, but... So in particular, I remember being in one of these caves, and it, was, it, it kind of shrank as you entered it, and you got kind of toward the back, and it looked like a dead end, but by the time you got at the back, you were on your hands and knees. Now, this is not much for those of you that struggle with, like, claustrophobia. You wouldn't like this. Um, but we, so, you know, a bunch of teenage boys, whatever, frontal lobes or whatever in the brain hasn't been developed yet, no offense, but hasn't been developed, right? Just, we're, we're prone to make decisions that don't regard our long-term future safety. And so we get to the back of this cave, and we realize that if you look up, there was this crack, this seam. Now, I don't have a picture of us, but I have a picture of what it looked like, uh, if you go to the next slide for me. This seam... Now, I know, like, how many of you are like, I don't even, I, I wish I hadn't even come to church today. You're making me feel like, Ugh. I just, just, just bear with me here, because there's, there's a point. So you get in this seam, and you kind of like, like a chimney, you know, like you kind of like shimmy your way up to the top, and then you come out the top, and then you crawl a little bit more, and it opened up into this huge cavern. Like, like a, you would never have known this thing was there, because it looked like a dead end, and then it looked like another dead end, and then you come around the bend, and it's just this, you realize that it's not even close to being what you thought it was. I remember at one point in my life thinking that I pretty much had Christianity figured out. I, I had heard just about everything there was to know about Jesus. 
I'd read the Gospels. I mean, you can only hear these stories so many times. You can only hear the story of the crucifixion so many times. I mean, we did it every Sunday growing up. I mean, I had heard it all. I'd heard it all. I was at the end of the cave, and there was nothing left to explore. Now, I want you to know something. I have been wrong a lot in my life. Last night... (laughs) Last night I was, uh, I was correcting somebody's grammar, which you should always do. It's always a good practice. People love it. They love it when you correct their grammar. Actually, you mean, don't you? And uh, I was wrong. And they said, actually, no, you're wrong. You know, and like, it feels terrible for a know-it-all to feel that way. <laughs> I have been wrong a lot in my life, a lot in my life. But I want you to hear something. I have never been more wrong than when I thought I had God, Jesus, Christianity, and the Bible more or less figured out. I've never been more wrong. And I want you to know something here. If you feel like you're at the end of the cave and there's nothing left to explore, let me tell you, you are completely and utterly 1,000% wrong. How does that feel, right? Right off the bat, I'm telling you you're wrong. But you have to know that because there is so much more to explore. And I guarantee you, the more you explore, there are going to be vast caverns that God opens up to you. And that's important that we know that. Our idea uh, of Jesus is often limited, often incomplete, often flawed. And one of our goals here with this sermon series is to, is, is to try to regenerate, recreate some of that sense of wonder and awe that we should have when we understand, begin to understand Jesus, begin to understand who he is. And if you were with us last week, we talked about the experience of standing at the, the front of the Grand Canyon um, or, or a new bride or a, new, a groom seeing his new bride for the first time or I told you a Star Wars, you know, did that for me. Some of you, it may be like being on top of a mountain and, and seeing the stars. But those experiences give you a sense of awe and wonder and, and I think that it's important for us to understand, like, wonder is, is basically this. So bear with me here as we try to define this concept. It's the feeling of being in the presence of something vast or beyond human scale that transcends our current understanding of things. I think the most direct line between our wonder and Jesus is what we're going to talk about today. Last week we talked about his teaching and some of the things that just made people you know, their minds explode and, and made them understand things in a new way, understand God in a new way. Jesus was understanding God in a way that they hadn't been able to comprehend before. But the things he taught were understanding, were communications from God in a way that they hadn't understood before. So I think the most straight line that we can have between Jesus and his wonder are what we're going to talk about today. Because this is important. Our relationship with Jesus will at best be apathetic when we have a limited picture of who he is. When we think we're at the end of the cave, our relationship with Jesus is going to be probably at best fairly apathetic. And you know, sometimes at church we, we talk about, we think about, we explore, we, we, we wonder, and then we feel like we've gotten to the end of the cave. And sometimes Christians are the most apathetic people about Jesus because they think they've explored their all, their, their, all there is to explore. And I want you to know, turn the corner and there's huge caverns waiting for you. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to talk today about like this most direct line. When you read the Gospels and you read about Jesus, one of the things that he did repeatedly, I think would probably likely cause us the most wonder. And that was his miracles. When Jesus did miracles, I think that was what gave people the greatest sense of awe and wonder. And I know some of you are like, oh, okay, cool, miracles, healing people, all that. I've read that. Just wait a second, because we're going to explore. There's about three dozen miracles in the Bible, and we're going to explore all of them. We're going to be here till 12 p.m. tonight. Just kidding. We're going to just explore one, one miracle in the Bible that I think if we allow it to, the, the reason for it, the purpose for it, is to open up this sense of awe and wonder of Jesus. So we're going to try to do that this morning. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. Book of Matthew, chapter 14. It's going to be a miracle that's familiar to you because you're in church. And for a lot of people, all of these are familiar to you. But I just want to, I want to try to invite you as much as possible to kind of clear your mind of, of all the sermons you've heard about passages like this, of all the times you've thought about this, of all the times you've heard classes taught about this, and come to it with an open mind for what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples and to us through these actions. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Made is an interesting word because the disciples were smart enough to know that they probably shouldn't be in the boat by what's going to happen here in a few minutes. But he made the disciples get in the boat. Very intentionally, strong word. Uh, and, and to go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, if you're not familiar with what's going on here, Jesus had just fed uh, 5,000 people with uh, five fish and two loaves. Or two loaves, five fish, I always get it confused. But he, he did a miracle, right? There was some kid that had a lunch and he said, hey, I'll share this. And Jesus took that and gave, made enough for at least 5,000 people, probably more than that, 5,000 people, 5,000 men to, to be able to eat. And there's this crowd and everybody's finishing up dinner. And Jesus tells his uh, disciples, get in the boat. It's time for you to head out. I'll dismiss the crowd. Thank you guys for coming. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Uh, make sure you tip your waiters and waitresses, and they gather these baskets of food, and, and Jesus, crowd clears out. Jesus goes up to pray. Verse 23, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and this is pretty, this is pretty typical. This is pretty standard for what Jesus would do most days. Later that night, he was there alone, verse 24, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And this is why I think the, the apostles probably didn't want to get in the boat because they knew what was brewing. They knew what was coming. And then it says this in verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. You notice how the author just kind of casually throws that out there? It's just a, oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, he was walking on the lake. Little early morning stroll, you know, on the water. And, 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 and when you're hearing this, like if the apostles were communicating, the disciples were communicating to this later and they were telling this story, and they're like, oh yeah, we were on the boat, bad storm, it was awful. And then Jesus came up walking on the lake and people would be like, whoa, hold record scratch, hang on a second. Walking, did you use the right preposition? Walking on the lake? Are you, do you mean in the lake? No, he was walking on the lake. Now, I know this doesn't seem like anything to us because this is Jesus and he did things like this, but even for a guy who is constantly doing the miraculous, this seems like a little bit of an outlier. This seems a little bit different, a little bit out of the ordinary. I mean, he was healing people all the time and he was making blind people see and lepers didn't have leprosy anymore and people that were sick weren't sick anymore. And occasionally he even did this amazing thing where people who were dead would come back to life. That happened too. But walking on the lake... What in the world is that for? First of all, wild, but why? Why would he do that? 
Now, besides that, you know, kind of the obvious craziness of this, there's come some high-level stuff going on here. And let me explain just briefly. Um, but in Hebrew culture, Hebrew society, that the, the idea of the ocean, the sea, these bodies of water, it was a literary metaphor. How many of you are just like, I'm out, literary metaphor, done. Bear with me. It was a literary metaphor for something that could not be controlled, something that was unpredictable, something that was chaotic. And in and, and, and the way that we might use, like, grab a bull by the horns. You know, hey, that person, he just really, you know, he grabs the bull by the horn. We're not literally saying they're doing that, but we're saying that that's a way of explaining this person, you know, is assertive or takes what he wants. Like, the idea of this body of water, something that you couldn't control. You can't tame the ocean. How do you solve a problem like Maria, right? How do you take a cloud and pin it down? You can't. They're not talking about pinning clouds down. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about now. Sound of music. Go watch it. It's a great movie. How do you do, you know, how do you catch a rainbow? You can't do those things. How do you, how do you control the sea? You can't. Everybody knows you can't. And so for Jesus to walk on the water, he's living out a metaphor. Living out something that when the, uh, the disciples saw this, were like, walking on the water? Are you sure on the water? Yeah. Jesus is not phased by this. How many of you, uh, when you send text messages, use this little symbol uh, on the screen? I, I was late to the game with emojis. Um, I, I really was hesitant. Something about emojis made me feel weird about sending them. You know what I mean? There's a couple of us. I just felt a little weird. I was like, you know, typing something up and then smiley face. It just didn't feel like me. But here's where I turned the corner. <laughs> Leon maybe uses emojis. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> I like it, though. That should, that, should be, that should be what we do. Just use emojis on screen and the communion and everything. But this is, it's, it's interesting that you left that up, you have that up there. I didn't intend them for do this, to do this. But where I turned the corner with using emojis was when I got an email from one of our elders. And at the end of the email, there was a smiley face. And I thought, I literally thought this. I thought, if, if our elders are more with it than me... I got to get with the program. That is ridiculous. It wasn't Leon, by the way, despite that graphic on the screen. I was like, I got I to get with the program. So occasionally I'll send out like a smiley face. Now, I never, never exaggerate with my emojis. Never. I will not send a smiley face emoji unless my face is smiley. Right? I don't, I don't lie with my emojis. I never type LOL unless I'm actually literally laughing out loud. And then I still can't bring myself to type LOL. Something about that. I don't get it. I actually type, I laughed out loud at that. That's what I actually type. <laughs> I have never once sent a crying eyes, smiley face emoji. Because this emoji means that I laugh so hard there are tears out my eyes. Most of what you text when you add that emoji is not that funny. It really isn't. It's not. Now you're like, well, wait a second. How do you know? We're just, people are just being nice to you when they write that back. Oh, funny. Now, here's what people do. They don't send a crying, smiley face emoji. What they do is this next thing. This is what they do. It can't, one isn't good enough because we live in a society that's just too much. You got to overdo it. Now, I think this is funny. I think, now, I'm an exclamation point kind of guy. A lot of my texts, emails have exclamation points. Sometimes, 
And it's because I'm excited. Sometimes, you can hear it in my voice right now, right? Every sentence in my voice ends with an exclamation point right now. So when I text you, I send a lot of exclamation points. This is true. When I get texts back from people that just say, okay, or sure, and then period, or no punctuation, I'm like, are they upset with me? Did I do something wrong? Are they mad? And then when you get a text with like five of these, or sometimes 20 of these, or sometimes from my children, I get like whole screens of these. (laughs) Have you ever had that? You know that everything's fantastic and wonderful all the time, right? This is, you're not really crying, laughing out loud, but this is a metaphor, right? You're literally, and, and you can do whatever you want, but you're literally not doing this thing. I imagine that when Jesus was walking on the water and when the disciples saw him walking on the water, that wasn't just, that was like mind blowing because he was literally living out a metaphor that they understood. They're like, this Jesus, man, he is like so in control. He's walking on top of the water during a storm. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. He was literally living out a a metaphor. Now, I I can imagine, and and I want to... I want, I want to try to get our picture of this as much as possible because this is hard for us to imagine. And pictures don't do it justice. You've seen movies and they just, it's not, they never can have enough CGI to get it quite right. But um, when, I was in, when I was in high school, my senior year of high school, we had a history teacher who was a weird guy. He was weird. No offense to history teachers or teachers in the room. He was just weird. So this was when our family lived in Taiwan, and I was at an international school uh, in Taiwan, and a history teacher was a guy here from the States, and Taiwan experiences a lot of earthquakes every year, lots, lots of them. And normally they're no big deal, you know, you just stop for a minute and like wait for everything to kind of settle down, you go about your day, and sometimes they're a little bit bigger. We were in history class one time, my history teacher's uh, lecturing at the lectern, and there's this little earthquake. And because he's kind of a weird guy, he starts doing like a little Irish jig and singing a song that he just made up on the spot about earthquakes. So all of us kids are at our desks, little earthquake, and our teacher's like, doot to doot to do earthquakes don't scare me, you know, that kind of thing. He's making up this weird little song, which, you know, we're both like, everybody in the room is like a little scared and a little weirded out at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, what? What is he doing? He's trying to show us. Now, our teacher is trying to show us that this earthquake don't bother me. I dance during earthquakes. Like, and I think he wanted us to go home and be like, our history teacher is so tough. He dances and sings during earthquakes. I, I think that might, might be what he was thinking. I'm, I'm not sure. However, as we were all watching this weird thing unfold before us, earthquake while our teacher singing. I mean, just, that's surreal, right? That's a little... Have anybody else been in that situation? No, it doesn't happen. While he's singing and while he's dancing about the earthquake a larger earthquake hits. So we're all sitting there watching him sing and dance during the earthquake. He's singing and dancing at the lectern. Larger earthquake hits and all of a sudden he gets, <gasps> he like gets scared, grabs onto the lectern. And that's my vision of him. That's my memory of this teacher is like a scared guy grabbing onto the lectern because the earthquake has said, oh yeah? You think you're tough? Oh yeah? That's my memory of him. Jesus is unfazed by the storm. Jesus sees the storm and he says, oh yeah, that's nothing. You got nothing on me. He's just walking along like it's a Sunday afternoon stroll on top of the water in a storm. Wow, that's kind of cool. But, but the, story, the story gets way cooler. 
So I want to give you my vision of these events. Jesus is obviously making a point with this miracle, but this is the Patrick revised version. He had to know, he had to know that he was going to freak them out. That wasn't a surprise to him, right? When he decided to do this, I'm going to take a little stroll. I'm going to sneak up on my disciples in a storm on the lake. I'm going to be walking. He had to know that would give them reason for their heart to stop beating scared, right? You know what I'm talking about, scared. Uh, I don't know if this is just me or a lot of teenage boys, maybe a lot of people, but did, did, do any of you guys sometimes like to scare people for random reasons? You know, your mom's downstairs reading a book and you'll sneak up behind her and go, boo. And it's like the most satisfying in the world when like the book gets thrown up in the air or whatever. I don't know. I don't understand why. Is that just me? I'm getting both yes and no's. Like, all right, I'll just assume it's not just me. But like my grandmother, always good for this. It didn't matter. I could be like, Grandma, I have a plastic spider in my hand that I'm going to open up my hand and I'm going to show you in an attempt to scare you. My grandma would be like, oh, that's fine. All right, ready? And she would still scream. She just, she was always good for it. And my sisters, and I don't know if I ever scared my mom. Probably not, because I love and respect my mom too much to do anything like that to her. (laughs) I just wonder if Jesus, knowing that he was going to do this, like if there was in the back of his mind some some bit of humanity that was like, I think this will be funny. Like, is that possible? Is that that possible? I think it's possible. He had to know. And this is how I envision this. They're on this boat, on this storm. They're well away from shore far enough that, you know, you can, this is weird. And as they're, as they're sailing along, I imagine it's like Peter or James or John, one of the guys who had been a fisherman who's manning the sails. Like they're calling out instructions saying, you know, get that rope, pull this thing, let's do this. I imagine Matthew, who's one of the apostles, who was a tax collector, not much for boats, was sitting like with his head on the side of the boat trying not to get seasick, just trying not to think about what's going on. Maybe he's nervous and maybe he's scared. And for whatever reason, Matthew kind of looks up and looks behind them because Jesus is catching up to them. He looks behind them and he sees like maybe 40, 50 feet off in the distance, he sees something, he like wipes his eyes, like get the wind, the waves, the water out of his eyes, and he sees it again. And it's a person. There's a person on top of the water. Now, I think Matthew is scared out of his pants. I think he's scared to death. And I think he doesn't take his eyes off what he sees. And I think he reaches over and tries to grab somebody to get somebody's attention to say, are you seeing this? And somebody else is seeing this. And I think one of them's like, what's going on? Somebody screams, somebody shouts. The Bible literally says that they screamed out of fear. Jesus had to know he was going to cause them to scream out of fear, right? Because that's the reaction I was trying to get from my grandma. I don't know if he was doing it to scare them, but surely he definitely did scare them. Now, I imagine everybody on, the, on board, their eyes are getting huge. They're all screaming. They're grabbing each other, and they're saying, like, I knew this was it. We should have never gotten on this boat. Peter's saying, I love you, man. I'm so sorry for all the things I've done and said. You know, whatever. They're thinking this is it. They're thinking they're, they're, they're going to die. And it feels a little bit like that teenage boy, when he's done too effective a job scaring his sister... And his sister's in the bathroom with the door locked on the phone with 911, right? And he's like, calm down, it's just me. Takes off the screen mask or whatever, and it's just me. And Jesus says this in verse 27. You can jump ahead one. Verse 27, Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And I almost imagine that, like, a little bit of laugh in his voice, like, sorry guys, it is I. Do not be afraid, don't be scared. Calm down. Now, this is really cool. And I don't know why 
the Bible translates it the way they do. The different versions translate it the way they do. But other places in the Bible, in very important junctures in Jesus' ministry, they translate what Jesus said here a little differently. Jesus literally said, verse 27, he immediate, Jesus immediately said to them, go to the next slide, take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. Now some of you that have grown up around the church, you know what that I am means, don't you? Jesus, as he was coming up behind them on the boat, everybody's screaming. He's walking on the water, wind, waves, howling, storm blowing. He says, take courage. I am. I am God. That's what he's saying there. Did you know that? That's pretty wild. Wow. You know, if you see a guy on the street and he's like, hey, I'm God. You're like, that guy's crazy. If you see a guy walking on the water in the storm and he says, I am God, you got some thinking to do. This is really important because Jesus, and this is, I think think we need to understand this. To separate Jesus' teaching and his miracles is to lose both. Jesus made the claim to be God while he's doing something miraculous and incredible. I've met people, uh, maybe you have too, maybe you're one of these people. I don't mean to disparage, but I've met people who are like, yeah, I believe Jesus is God, but those miracle stories, I'm, I'm not healing the blind. I'm not sure about that. Like, I believe he's God. Do you believe he died and rose again? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know, walking on the water, like... That seems a little ridiculous to me. That, that seems like you're being willing to swim in the ocean, but you're afraid of the kiddie pool. I don't understand that. I don't understand that sentiment. But there is a sentiment within, maybe us, within society for sure, to kind of separate Jesus and his miracles. There's this idea. And, and, and maybe this is something that um, you don't like to admit, but there's sort of this all-or-nothing approach with Jesus and the miracles. Like, you accept it all. Or, or you kind of have to get rid of it all because he intertwined them in such a way that you can't just pick and choose. H- have any of you ever been reading um, your kids' a bedtime story uh, or maybe watching a kid's movie with them and something happens in that movie or something is said in that bedtime story that just completely gets you? Like you're just, you're reading along about Dr. Seuss, Sneetches, Green Eggs and Ham, Butter Side Up, Butter Side Down. You know what a story I'm talking about, right? You're reading along this. I know I've mixed a bunch of stories in there. You're reading along, and you're like, these guys just need to get along. Butter Side Up, Butter Side It doesn't matter. And you're like, got a tear rolling down your eyes, and your kids are like, what are you doing, right? Have, have you ever been like, you know, watching Sesame Street, and Oscar the Grouch just says something so profound? And you're like, I... I think Oscar the Grouch changed my mind. You know, and then the next minute, he's back to eating garbage or whatever, right? You're like, you can't go around telling people, you know what, I really based my life on uh, what Oscar the Grouch said in this episode of Sesame Street. You can't do that. But there are times where you see this profound truth in different, like, goofy things. It could be a Dr. Seuss book or whatever, you know. Um, Unless someone cares a whole lot, nothing is going to change. It's not. And you're like... That's true. I need to get out there and do something. I need to do it. And you're reading Horton Hears a Who, right? You, you can't go to like the adoption agency and say, oh, why'd you decide to adopt? Well, I was reading Dr. Seuss and, you know, it just doesn't work. A person's a person, no matter how small. 
So, uh, what, what do you believe about abortion? Well, to quote Dr. Seuss, you know, like, you just can't, it just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't work very well to do that. And, and people have tried to separate Jesus' words from Jesus' miracles for whatever reason. Maybe they're ashamed of, oh, people who believe Jesus could walk on the water, that's ridiculous, that's mythology. M- maybe, but he intertwined his teaching and his miracles in a way that you can't really separate them. People have tried. For example, in the feeding of the 5,000, there's people who think that he didn't really feed 5,000 people. Oh, that's, uh, that's nice of you to think that. How simple of you. Uh, actually, what he did is that little boy, when he brought out his lunch and he showed it to Jesus, the crowd was inspired to pull their lunch that they had been hiding away, that they didn't want to share. The whole crowd was inspired to bring their lunches out. And Jesus didn't actually do a miracle. What he did was inspire the, the people to share. And everybody shared and everybody ate and there was even stuff left over. That's nice, isn't it? It's a nice sentiment. I think we should all share. Is that what Jesus was trying to prove with that story? Let's all share? No. With walking on the water, you know, of course, I've been doing a lot of research and reading about this. With walking on the water, there's a large body of people who believe the disciples just weren't very far from shore. And Galilee was foggy, and it was stormy. It was a dark and stormy night, and they couldn't tell. Jesus was actually just strolling along on the the sand on the seashore, and he's like, hey, guys, and they were just freaking out. And then Jesus, hey guys, don't be afraid, I'm God. It's okay, I'm just walking here on the sand. That doesn't feel right to me. I think God, in a body, was walking along the sea, on top of it, during a storm. And the the disciples, people who he had known, who had followed him, who had dedicated their lives to this point to him, saw him and got scared. And Jesus said, take courage, it is I, I am, do not be afraid. I think Jesus was claiming to be God. And I think he was doing so in a way that only God could do. It's pretty impressive to me. Pretty impressive. Moving on. Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. Peter has a reaction that I wouldn't have had. He said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And I would have said, Lord, if it's you, you're freaking me out, go away. Or can you please come into the boat? What you're doing is weirding me out a little bit. But Peter's like, nope, I want to try this because he's just kind of the coolest guy in the world. Like, let me try this too. And you know, verse 29, Jesus is like, come on. He said, then Peter got out of the boat, walked on water and came toward Jesus. That's pretty cool too. Like he's walking, you imagine he's like a little unsteady, like walking on the waves, maybe taking a step up, whatever it is. And then, I mean, shockingly, right? Peter gets a little nervous. He's like, uh, the physics of this thing are not working out for me. And of course, he starts to sink. And he calls out, Jesus, save me. And Jesus reaches down and pulls him up. And he's like, he says this, Jesus reached down his hand and caught him. He said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And I just, just real quickly, I want you to think about that for a second. Because a lot of people like to disparage Peter. They're like, Peter didn't have faith, little faith. Listen, Peter has walked more steps on water than you or I ever have or ever will. And I've tried. When you, listen, when you grow up in the church, you try stuff like this. I, I've tried. Jesus did it. I can try it. Run real fast off the dock onto the lake. <laughs> I've tried. It doesn't work. I've tried moving mountains with my prayer. I've tried. I'm like, God, please, this would be so cool. Please let me move this mountain. I've tried. Peter walked more steps on you on, than you on water. So I don't want to disparage him too much. And I see, and I could be wrong. This is me thinking this. I see a little bit of kindness and affection in that question. I see like a dad talking to a child a little bit, right? That's what I see in it. Maybe uh, you can think whatever you want. That's fine. 
but you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And Peter's like, I doubted because I was walking on water. What do you mean, why did I doubt? What kind of question is that? And this, is, this next part is so cool to me, verse 32. And, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now, th- that, could be, that could be just the most amazing coincidence in the world. It could be. Could have just happened. Timing could have been like that. However, we know from earlier in Matthew that Jesus had the ability, if he so choose, chose, to say to the wind and the waves and the storm, peace be still, right? I don't know. This text doesn't tell us this. I think, I believe, Jesus calmed the storm. doesn't say that, and I don't want you to feel like you're being misled. False teaching. I, I don't know. This is just what I think. That They got in the boat, and Jesus calmed the storm. I don't know if he said like he did in Matthew chapter 8, peace be still. Like, and, and think about this. He, in Matthew chapter 8, if not in this passage, he talked to the weather as if it was his well-trained dog, and it obeyed. That's amazing. And you know what they did after this? Maybe could have been walking on the water. Maybe could have been calming the storm. But they did, I think, the only thing that you can do in this situation. Verse 33. Then those who were with him in the boat worshipped him. That's the only thing you can do in a situation like that. You remember about a month ago, I think, um, we were predicted to get a snowstorm here in Minnesota. You guys remember this? Yeah. Um, The National Weather Bureau had to issue an apology to Minnesota and Wisconsin because we did not get that snowstorm. You you remember this, right? Some of you are like, I remember I put the snow tires on, I canceled work, I did all my shopping. Lots of people evidently canceled plans or changed plans because of this prediction. And then we got to, it was supposed to like hit on Friday and there was nothing and Saturday. It was like 50 and sunny, you know. I ran into a, uh, a, a young person who may or may not be in the youth group and they had neglected to do their homework based on the weather report. So they were scrambling a little bit the next day. So that National Weather Bureau service was like, I apologize to all of you kids who neglected to do your homework because you thought there was going to be 12 feet of snow on the ground. I'm amazed at how good people are at guessing the weather. Um, But look, you can get a PhD in weather guessing. I think it's called meteorology, right? You You can get a PhD in meteorology, and you'll just be slightly better at guessing the weather than someone who does not have a PhD. Like, I could tell you, I don't think it's going to snow today. And I will probably just be as right as a lot of meteorologists. I'm not disparaging meteorologists. Some of you are like, no, they predict months out. And I I look months out sometimes for youth events. I'm like planning things months out. What's the weather going to be like? Okay, we're going to go swimming. It's 50 degrees. We go swimming in Minnesota when it's 50 degrees. This is great. But we're not very good at guessing the weather much less controlling the weather. We don't get to control that. Yet God, in human flesh, strolling along the waves, strolling along the water, comes up to the boat, tells Peter, get out, come on out. And then when they get back in the boat, whether or not he said, peace be still or not, they knew that he was the God who controls the weather. They could see that. And here's what I think that they were blown away with. They were blown away by the fact that 
the, the, their sense of this almighty God who had done all these amazing things in the Old Testament, all that power, all that might, all that wonder, all that majesty was wrapped up in skin and bone, and they got a glimpse of it. And when they got a glimpse of it, they were blown away, and they were compelled to worship. We think good worship is when the songs are good, when we sing the right songs, when, when Paul's feeling it, when we're feeling it, when we like the words to the songs. Good worship is when we recognize and we respond appropriately to the reality of who Jesus is. That's what good worship is. We didn't sing my favorite song today. Well, that's too bad. You can still worship. We sang a song I didn't like today. Too bad. You can still worship. Good worship is when we recognize and we respond to who Jesus really is. All right. I want to wrap up what we're talking about um, this morning. I, I, think, I think you could say this. We, we said wonder was, was that feeling of being in the presence of something vast or beyond human scale that transcends our current understanding of things, right? That's wonder. Let me give you a better definition, another definition. Wonder could be described as that feeling of being in the presence of someone vast or beyond human scale that transcends our understanding. And I think the disciples were in the presence of God and they recognized it and their only response was to worship. That's the only thing that they could do. It's hard to imagine how this would have impacted the disciples long term. Um, I don't know, maybe they were trying to help people understand who Jesus really was. And no, he really walked on water. I saw it with my own eyes. He calmed the storm. I knew he was the son of God. Peter writes about this later in his work. I don't have it on the screen, but I just want to read you a couple things that Peter wrote about, uh, about Jesus. And I, and I wonder if it was informed by these ideas. For we did not follow cleverly, cleverly invented stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Do you think he was maybe thinking about Jesus on the water, Jesus calming the storm when he said that? We didn't follow cleverly invented stories. I didn't hear this from anybody else. This is not second, third, fourth hand information. I saw this. I saw this, this being that we thought was just a human, and then every once in a while the godness inside him leaked out. I saw this. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. I want to leave you with just two points, challenges. It's really one, two sides of the same coin. I think this, I think apathy is inevitable when we have an incomplete picture of Jesus. I think our relationship with him has to, has to start by understanding that we have a growing knowledge of, of who he is. And the flip side of this, same basic point, but saying it another way, a growing realization of Christ makes it difficult not to be transformed by him. Peter said, again in his book that he wrote, 1 Peter, this is in chapter 1, he said, you would do well to pay attention to this message, this message about who Jesus was. As a, listen, he says it's so poetic, as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Isn't that a nice verse? Those of us um, that have tried and failed to change our lives know this thing. We know this. We would love to see Jesus walk in the water. I would. That'd be awesome. But we know this one thing, that a changed life is a miracle. And we don't give that the credit it deserves. A changed life is a miracle. When we see someone get baptized, 
that's a miracle. When we see somebody turn their lives around, repent, that's a miracle. When we see someone going from just the, the worst person, the worst husband, a terrible human being, and they begin to follow Jesus, and that light begins to dawn in their lives, and they begin to be transformed, that's a miracle. We're seeing miracles. Like, well, why, didn't, why doesn't Jesus show up and do things like that today? I don't, I don't know. I don't speak to that. But when you see Jesus transforming lives today, you are seeing the miraculous. You are seeing the power of God work in people's lives. Don't shortchange that. That's amazing. That's beautiful. So today, so today, may we be overwhelmed and transformed by the reality of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Thank you.